Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. In the summer of 2017, many in the Buddhist world were caught off guard by the sudden death of Michael Stone. Michael was only 42 years old, and as author, activist, and teacher of meditation and yoga, his star was just rising. What few outside his close circle of friends and family knew was that Michael was struggling with bipolar disorder. It was later revealed that he had died from an opioid overdose. For many outside observers, Michael's death was an example of the danger of spiritual bypass and a reminder that spiritual teachers are not perfect beings. But for people who knew Michael, there was much more to the story. Our guest this month is someone who knew him better than anyone else, his wife, Karina Stone. Last year, Karina finished working on a collection of Michael's teachings. It's called The World Comes to You, Notes on Practice, Love, and Social Action. While editing the book, Karina grappled with difficult questions about Michael's life and legacy, all while working through her own grief around his death. In this episode, we discuss mental health, the role of the teacher, mourning a loved one, and the teachings that were dearest to Michael Stone. Of course, Karina can only speak from her experience and does not claim to be the definitive authority on these issues, but I was struck by her willingness to open up about a loss that is still so fresh. She does this in hopes that her story can help lift the stigmas around mental health, stigmas that can prevent us from seeking out the support we might need or from offering it to the people in our lives who need it. Karina Stone, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, I'd like to start by talking about the book. I understand that Michael began writing it before he died a couple of years ago. Can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about and what it means to you? The book comes from various writings and talks that Michael gave through his life. It was an extension of a project initiated by a writer named David Mitchell, who was pulling together Michael's pieces of Michael's work, uh, especially as it related to social action, into um, a manuscript. And that that became kind of the food for this book. And that book never came to be. However, in uh, the months before Michael died, he was in conversation with Joni Murphy and Jill Margot, two writers and allies of his, who encouraged him with this project and set him off in the direction of creating this book. In the weeks and months before Michael died, uh, his friend and uh, editor and writer, Aaron Robinson, came into the picture and she worked with him to uh, pull together more pieces that would become um, the content of, of this book. And before he died, it was in the stage of a rough first draft. And it went from there. After Michael died, it uh, came to me in the weeks and months after and um, evolved from that point. I imagine you had to sift through his writings and through his papers. Um, how long was it before you were able to do that? Mm-hmm. I vividly recall looking at the material probably a week after Michael died. Aaron, who is the editor of the book and has been a dear friend of our family since the beginning, um, she was she was actually with me in the hospital with Michael, and she was with me arriving home afterwards with my children. And, uh, and then she brought the material to me in the days after he died. And it, uh, it took a while to be able to really dive into it. 
Uh, As you can imagine, I had plenty of images to sort through in my mind after he died, images from our life together, images from his death and uh, this new reality I was digesting. And so I needed to allow space for those images to have priority and space and time to evolve and come to a settled place before I could bring in more images from his writing and from his work. Right. Uh, so there, there was a process there. At the time, I understand you were expecting your fourth child. Our third child, uh, Michael, has a son from a previous relationship, so his fourth child, our third. Yes, I was 16 and a half weeks pregnant when mm-hmm. Michael died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, how difficult it must have been. Um, and then to put together this book, um, what does the book mean to you? The book, to me, it's a lot of things in different moments. Uh, in the process of working on the book, it it was a conversation with him. It was an opportunity to go back into being present with him in life uh, because his voice is so strong in this book. He's very much alive to me in his writing in this book, in his voice. And uh, it was an opportunity to be in conversation with him and to do together what we did in life, which was navigate expression and how he could share his practice and his path with others. And I mean, there I have many memories of him sitting at the kitchen table typing away on his laptop and trying to figure out how exactly to articulate something or how exactly to maybe to make a workshop description or a retreat description or some um, other kind of writing. And we would put our minds together and come to something. And not that that happened all of the time. Often it was towards the end of a project. Uh, And again, this was towards the end of a project, and uh, so therefore similar. And yeah, I really have a strong strong image in my mind of him sitting at the kitchen table and me cooking at the stove and and hashing something out together. So it really felt like that. It means that to me. It was very hard to wrap it up, to let go of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when people lose a partner, often uh, the surviving partner has to take on the the duties and the role of the partner that they lost. In a certain way, it's as if you're completing his book or at least putting it together and preparing it for publication was sort of taking on something that otherwise would have been his. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And there's a lot of responsibility there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that with his legacy, too, I would say. I feel I feel as though I was left with his work and his legacy to, to uphold and nourish and speak to. And uh, it is a responsibility, and it's for him and it's for his work and for his students and for my family. Did this uh, sense of purpose uh, help you get through what you got through? Yes. To me, the book came later in terms of my grieving process. The book was later on. Um, almost a year after he died, before I was really able to engage the work. Right. But the part that I was taking up immediately was his role as a teacher and uh, addressing his students. Uh, that part, that part was immediate. Mm-hmm. 
You know, the circumstances of his death are no secret. I mean, we now know that he was suffering from bipolar disorder, and it was something that he was going to discuss with his students uh, at some point. But a lot of people expect practice to solve or resolve all of our issues. And I was wondering if you had something to say about the relationship between, say, psychotherapy, medication, spiritual practice. Can you say something about that? So something Michael speaks to in in this book, this message is very clear for me, this message is clear in this book, is that this practice is not about transcendence. This practice is not about getting over one's dark thoughts and becoming a different type of person that doesn't experience difficult things. And we know as practitioners that that, in fact, is the opposite of Buddhist practice, which begins with fully knowing one's suffering and fully being in your life. So nothing's left out. And where something is left out, that's where we need to notice and bring those things in. The narrative that spiritual practice that psychotherapy also has, I think this is similar, is a narrative that we can cure all with these tools of meditation. And I think that's a dangerous thought, a dangerous idea. Because our practice is constantly changing. We are working with minds, and minds are broad. Minds can include anything. Minds include every kind of thought, uh, whether you experience that frequently or, or not frequently. I think those with bipolar experience a broad field of mind and the darkest, darkest things and the brightest, brightest things. And we know that the mind is capable of anything, and our lives are going to change. Our practices are going to change. And at different points in time, we might need different kinds of supports. At some point, someone might need to be able to sit in a chair for meditation practice. Now, it would be quite complicated if I were to think, oh, that person's practice must be imperfect because they need to sit in a chair. And how is it so different with mental health? How is it so different, the thought of, oh, their practice must be missing something if they need medication, if they need uh, a tool, a different kind of tool? that um, I myself might not need. Um, so this, this judging mind is, is, not, is not mindful. It's not mindfulness, right? We know mindfulness is paying attention on purpose with no judgment com- or commentary. And so this is something that's really important to pay attention to is this narrative that we can choose to not feed into in the spiritual worlds around mental health and the need sometimes for medication so that we can access the tools of meditation, medication so that we can work with our minds. Some folks really need this. Um, Michael turned to medication eventually in his life, and uh, and that's a dance. There's a dance there with physiology and neurophysiology, and it was really important. It was very, very important for him. And I believe psychotherapy has this, too, this sense that if you really go deep with the right therapist and you're very, very open, you can take care of all these things. And there's not really such a thing as a true diagnosis. This is not across the board, but this is something that one encounters. And I think this is dangerous. Uh, I think it's disregarding uh, the reality that people with um, neurobiological differences, that whether they come from trauma or some card one is dealt in their nervous system in their own life, the idea that someone should be able to work and access with all of the content that leads to those conditions, that someone should be able to work with that, or there's a fault, I think that's, that's also a dangerous thing. So there's some places we can't, we can't see and we can't speak to 
and especially with altered states. Yeah, you know, it might say more about our expectations of a teacher, or uh, that they be perfect, say, right. uh, than it does with the teacher or him or herself. I mean, I would think that it would be difficult to find any teacher without some sort of hidden ailment or anxiety or issue. But in the wake of Michael's death, the issue of transparency came to the fore. Uh, I spoke with you earlier, and I've spoken uh, with others who let me know that he was planning uh, to talk to his students about bipolar disorder. And that discussion of transparency was sometimes very healthy. At other times, I think you felt that an unfair burden was placed on Michael uh, after his death. Mm-hmm. I highly support other teachers revealing their their vulnerabilities, uh, whether it's mental health or substance use. Um, these kinds of discourses are extremely important. And I encourage those folks who took the opportunity of Michael's death to come out with their situations honestly and and then at the same time to criticize that he hadn't yet. I invite those folks to examine what's happening there in their expressions of where they're at and what they're trying to get out of out of that moment in public. I, I think that's important to examine. Right. You know, another thing that I was thinking about as I came here to the studio, through no doing of your own, your own life was turned inside out. In fact, what privacy you had in many ways was lost. And I wonder sometimes what is transparency and what is a simple, like, violation of privacy? Uh, do you have any feelings about that? Hmm. Oh, I think it's always up to a person. I think it's always up to a person to be transparent in a way that they feel safe enough to be. And it's like we hold ourselves open to a certain degree, and we all need limits on that because ultimately the individual needs to feel safe at the end of the day. We all have our traumas. We all have our vulnerable parts. And being completely open I don't think is is necessarily safe for anybody. You always need to hold on to something enough to feel safe. And so whether you the degree to which you feel safe, you know, that's – in part dependent on the conditions around you and the culture. Right. You know, you wrote something um, in an in intro to one of the sections in the book. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll read it. Uh, uh, you write, and this is an excerpt, uh, Michael explores love as an energy that flows when we are not trying so hard to be another image we've made up about ourselves. So I think about that. It's so nicely put, um, and I think anyone can relate to that. He must have been under tremendous pressure dealing with this illness on the one hand and having to appear before students without their knowing that on the other. And I'm wondering what our expectations or what our projections do to put tremendous pressure on the teacher. This is Mm -hmm. something I imagine you've thought about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think also teachers, I don't know, I... I've met some teachers through Michael's work in Center of Gravity, which we used to run in Toronto. Teachers would visit, and teachers are humans too. And there's pressure on them, but they also have opportunities to uh, to share Dharma talks, to speak, and be vulnerable. And I think it's and Michael did this too. And he he didn't overtly state, "I have bipolar disorder. This is what I'm working with." But he shared, he shared also his vulnerability. And I think th- listening back to talks, one hears more um, how much he was sharing when you know that he was dealing with that. 
And just to know that the teachers, when teachers are talking about vulnerability, they're also talking about their own vulnerability. And it's not, right. it's not just, it's not pretend, they're not like trying to relate to you because they don't actually experience it anymore because they've transcended it. That's not true. They actually have interpersonal challenges, their own challenges. They struggle with their lives. And uh, I think we need to like also just really hear that. And not have this belief that we're going to get over all of that because we're so tired of our difficulties and our own lives. Do people come to you for advice uh, about living with or loving somebody who has, uh, say, bipolar disorder or any other mental illness? Have you been approached by anybody? Because I just wonder what advice mm-hmm. you would give them if you if they did. Oh. Yeah, yeah, some and from folks who who live and work with mental health challenges. And the advice I feel um the most strongly about is pretty concrete. I know that Michael Michael was not taking his medicine in probably at least the week before he died if not longer and I can't know, but I know that in the post or the anti-mortem blood samples taken from the hospital, he did not have a trace of his medication in his system. Right. And uh, that's dangerous, and we know this. Um, I could have been tracking his meds, and I know that especially with bipolar, people making changes to their medications is extremely dangerous, and I know that that's also very common. So that's an oops. That's a big oops, and I hope to share that lesson with others that – if you know someone who is taking medication like that, even if you think that you know, and for Michael to have made a mistake with his medication, he made some kind of a choice at some point to, to change that. And uh, any anyone can. And I, oops, like I could have been watching his medication with him consensually, you know, as long as he would have consented to that, um, to make sure that he was on track with that. And, and what else? I, I think that he could have had a crisis number in his phone. And again, these all come back to me to the point of like nobody's transcending anything. Like even if you have all the tools, we all know we can be vulnerable. Some people can be incredibly vulnerable and those people need a crisis number in their wallet. They need to have friends who they know who have expressed that, yes, I can handle your darkest, darkest moments and your darkest, darkest thoughts. When they arise, you can call me and I can handle it. And um, if you are that person for somebody else, make sure that the person who's vulnerable knows that. And if you are close to a person who's vulnerable and you don't feel that capacity, they should know that too. So they know not to call you. And if you don't have that support, then seek it out. I think those things are really important. And to me, they're very practical and um, we should all be doing this. You know, I I have to say, it kind of breaks my heart to hear you say, oops, as if you're second-guessing mm. yourself. Um, you know, we do what we can, and people often blame themselves. Have you struggled with that? Uh, because uh, so many people feel the way you do. In fact, it's not really a question of I should have, I could have, I would have, that sort of thing. And like the mind, uh, these things arise and pass. And yes, I've experienced blame. I see it, and I don't feed it. Um, and if I, if I see that I'm feeding it, then I talk to someone else about it and then they, they help me not feed it, you know? Yeah. But these things come and go. Of course. You know, I have a question about practice. Uh, you know, some people might say, well, look, the practice didn't work and they make a judgment about practice. What would you say to that? 
I would say, um, but look at how how well it did work for this long. You know, uh, Michael Michael lived for forty two years, and he was bipolar the whole time. His life could have gone down many different paths, uh, but this was the path he walked, and uh, and he did remarkably well. Uh, and you know, the years. The last few years were harder. Uh, his condition became more difficult. And um, that's hard. And he needed other tools to bring in. He brought in medication and he brought in different supports. And um, he did his best. I think he did really well. And uh, ultimately, he was really open in his heart, in his life. And he really was doing his best. And there were parts of him that uh, he couldn't access very clearly. And I think that's part of um, bipolar. Is, it's, it's a really, it's, it's, a, it's a wicked illness. Uh, I feel like it is like a cancer in a way. It's like a brain cancer. And, um, and he worked extremely hard. And I don't know, I just love him for that. And I really saw his vulnerability in that. How can we kind of get around this idea that practice will solve all our problems? Perhaps not practice, but meditation more specifically. Oh, I mean, yeah. No, which to me means um, paying attention to what arises in one, one's mind and experience. And um, and I think it's just being it's being tender. It's, it's creating a, enough protection around yourself that you feel safe enough to uh, allow yourself to be tender with what arises. And uh, then even if it's really hard and, and it doesn't match with, with who you are wanting to be, um, you, you can be tender with it and, you know, really see like, oh, my anxiety, there it is. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not just like uh, on, the, on the side of the road of practice. It is the practice. That is what the practice is. Right. You're listening to Tricycle's editor and publisher, James Shaheen, in conversation with Karina Stone, co-editor of The World Comes to You, notes on practice, love, and social action by Michael Stone. Have you wondered what the purpose of mindfulness really is? Join us in Tricycle's online classroom, where you can now join beloved meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg for a new six-part course, The Whole Path, Kindness, Meditation, and Wisdom. In this course, Sharon will explore the nuances of key Buddhist practices, such as the development of mindfulness and concentration. These practices, Sharon explains, can allow the mind and heart to open to the Buddha's transformative wisdom. The Whole Path starts March 23rd, and Tricycle Podcast listeners can receive a special $25 discount when they enroll with the code TRIPOD25. Enroll now at learn.tricycle.org. Now, let's return to James Shaheen in conversation with Karina Stone. Karina starts us off with a reading from The World Comes to You. Chapter 21. Unexpected Altars. In 2012, I went to Japan. 
One day, I went on a long hike through the mountains to some Shinto temples. I got to one temple and really had to pee, but I couldn't find a restroom anywhere. So I finally asked someone, is there a restroom somewhere? And they pointed downstairs. I went downstairs. The stairs were stone and went down into the mountain, very, very deep. And it was so dark. When I reached the bottom, there were thousands of candles lit. Thousands. Thousands. This is where they kept the small porcelain urns of ashes from all the villagers in the neighborhoods around the mountain who had died. They sat here in this basement. There was a caretaker, a Shinto priest, whose job it was to keep all the candles lit. At the end of the hall, there was an altar. Buddhist altars, especially Shinto altars, usually have a textile hanging in such a way that you can't see the face of the deity unless you bow down really low and look up. So I did what I usually do when I see an altar. I went to light some incense and bow, but this altar, when I looked up, had a round mirror so that instead of a deity, I saw my face. I began crying. What am I bowing down to? My own life. It's the punchline of this practice. At the end of the day, it's just you. You grow into your own life. I never did find the restroom. Why were you interested, or why did unexpected altars seem particularly apt to you? To me, that chapter, it really captures his vulnerability. And I knew that part of him. I saw him be very vulnerable um, in our relationship. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that everyone could have that experience of him. Um, but that his response when he saw his own face on the altar was uh, to cry and, and to really feel his life. Um, it shows the bigness of his heart, which for me is his legacy. And it's so easily discardable under the, or caught in the stigma of his illness and then especially how he died. It's, it's really easy for folks to discard the bigness of his heart and the greatness of his mind. And I'm someone who knew his faults, and I'm still saying this. Well, you seem to share his heart. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's nice. He's in me. <laughs> I, I can hear that. You know, before each of the the sections in the book, you write an intro, but they read more like reflections or exercises in remembering Michael. Can you say something about how you came to write those intros and what that was like? Well, that's really apt, I think. They are reflections. And like I said at the beginning, I really needed to engage with the book when I had enough space to allow all the images from the book to really land in me. So when I had the the space for that, I was able to take on the content and then to allow it to be in my mind and to hold it and and to digest it and move it out onto the page in a way that pulled things together, um, threads from the book. And that happened for me. Um, it was It was like a waiting process until I felt like I could do that. And then when I could do that, it was just quick. I think I wrote each of those sections in like 20 or 30 minutes. It was just holding the content for a time until it was ripe and then allowing it to come out. Did you also have a role in editing the pieces? 
rudimentary editing, and a lot of the editing was Aaron. And then I came in in the places where um, edits that related to uh, Michael's voice were really in question and to ensure that his voice was very intact and represented in the book. Right. You know, it's interesting. I refer to those as reflections, and and the book itself is full of Michael's reflections on living in practice. And it almost read a bit like a dialogue between the two of you, although he had left us by then. Did you think of it that way at all? Yeah. Yeah. And publishing day was really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Publishing day was really sad, and I, I was overjoyed when I opened my door and on the doorstep, um, Michael's publisher had delivered uh, the most beautiful and actually most enormous bouquet of sunflowers I'd ever oh, seen. Nice. And they didn't know, and I did let them know that those were his favorite flower. Ah. And I, so, yeah. That sort of synchronicity can happen, right? Especially after a death. Yeah. yeah he's he's not he's not gone to me. He's very close. Right. You know, the book also touches on social action. Can you explain how that was important to both you and Michael? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the fruit of this practice when you follow it through working with one's own thoughts and habits is seeing the habits of culture and the patterns of culture that are damaging. And um, this was important in our family. This was important in how we lived and not that we were perfect. We were not perfect. And, but we had things that were really important. And this was what he shared in his work and with his students. He felt ignited by his own experience of patterns. And, and he really worked hard. And he, was, he had to work hard to survive. He had to work hard with his own mind patterns. So this is where he was really skillful and really able to share uh, the tools one can use to to work at that interface of of habit and choice making and the edge of what needs to shift for oneself and therefore for the culture. Did he invite his students to engage in social action? Was this a part of his uh, uh, teaching? He was supportive. I mean, I I also think his sense of social action was really broad. Mm -hmm. And social action means very different things to different people in different scopes of life and different times of life. Uh, So whether whether it's supporting the mother who is breastfeeding her two-year-old and that's a kind of activism, he would support that and encourage that. Whether that another person's practice and social action might be much more political and larger realm, you know. I, I don't think he separated those things. He was interested in in supporting folks to to work with the places where where we need to wake up and see what's needed, right? Large or small, right? In other words, the person next to you, or the the people you deal with on a daily basis. That's right. Yes, an activist can be very rude to their family while being a saint in the world, <laughs> and that's akin to spiritual bypassing. Right. Is what's being left out. Absolutely. You know, another interesting aspect of your relationship with Michael is that you started off as his student, and we read so much nowadays about how that can go so terribly wrong, and in your case, it went so right. Do you want to talk about that? Um, First and foremost, by saying, I don't recommend it. It's very hard work. (laughs) (laughs) And um, 
And for us, it worked out very well. And there's a risk. There's a risk there. Um, for us, I had started to practice at his center. It had been probably eight months, and I realized I was attracted to him. And a lot of what was arising for me in my practice was my attraction for my teacher, which is complicated. And I started to feel ambivalent about attending this center where, you know, I was going there to learn the skills to work with. Mm -hmm. The thing that was arising from the teacher, that's complicated. So uh, I actually was preparing to leave the community and um, find a different place to practice. And at the same time, he opened his doors to student uh, teacher meetings and invited people to sign up um, to meet with him one-on-one. And I thought, okay, great, I can thank him in person and say, uh, I'm sorry, I need to leave, thank you very much. And I arrived to the session to do that, and then partway through there was a, a long silence, and he said, I have to admit, I'm feeling affection for you. <laughs> and, of course, there was another very long silence. <laughs> Teacher and then I said, you know, Right, and I said, me too. And then we agreed to n- not nourish that. And to name that and set that aside. And what happened then? And then, you know, these things go. They, you know, can't set aside the heart. <laughs> right. And so it didn't change. And, um, and I let him know that it hadn't changed some months later. And then some more months later after that, he invited me to lunch. And, and then we had lunch and he said, there's six reasons why we should not see each other. And he, he was very serious. And he, on his fingers, he named each one of them. I can't remember what they were, but each one of them. And I think I wasn't paying attention enough because I just wanted to kiss him <laughs> at that point. And so I did. <laughs> and that's how it started. And, and then beca- and the question became, how do we integrate this with community life? Because we are living in or practicing in this community together. And so Michael asked his teacher, Norman Feldman in Ontario, who was the teacher that authorized Michael as a Vipassana teacher, he asked him for advice on how to do this skillfully. So the advice was three things. One, don't practice together in the same center for three months. And so we did that. In fact, we uh, did that for six months because it was so great to step outside of that role structure. And and the two other points were don't be obvious and don't be secretive. Right. That was really great. And and still, I think this is a whole other, uh, that's a whole other conversation around teachers and students and one that needs to be handled incredibly carefully. And we all know that there's, there's power imbalance uh, in those dynamics. And I think it's dangerous. Uh, I think it's dangerous to uh, approach that unskillfully. Well, that was, how many years ago was that? Uh, that would have been 2010. So is the Sangha still intact? Are people still meeting in the same place? Are you still involved with it? We we moved from Toronto in 2014. Uh, what was Center of Gravity became Gravity, and those folks still meet. And they created a very horizontal community, so a very um, democratic situation where there isn't hierarchy in the same kind of way. And that's that's continuing. Those folks are still meeting. Do you stay in touch with them or...? I do, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And what is your practice like now? Is there a particular sangha you belong to or Oh, my children. <laughs> <laughs> I I I'm in conversation with some teachers and um that feels really holding and nourishing and um and my my kids are really 
my teachers, and they hold me they hold me accountable. <laughs> right, I'm sure they do. Um, you mentioned that Michael still had unpublished work, and that you've been putting his teachings online. And I'm wondering what the future looks like for his teachings in the community. Do you plan to publish anything more? I mean, this is such a nice book. I, I would like our listeners to know that. Are you planning to continue to publish? There is more work. There, There is a larger project, maybe his biggest project, that he was working on on mental states, where he is very transparent about his bipolar. It's a huge project. So that is still um, pending, and and we don't know yet, but we'll see. Right. I mean, I, I suppose those are very personal writings. I mean, are they difficult to go through, or have you gone through them? They are difficult to go through. Mm-hmm. They're very right. difficult to go through. He is very, very candid about his some of his darkest thoughts. And uh, and so it's material to treat very carefully too, and um, yeah, and so and so I can only say that we'll see. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. the title of your book again is "The World Comes to You: Notes on Practice, Love, and Social Action." So tell me a little bit about the title, "The World Comes to You." To me, that relates to uh, the sensory experience of the world coming to me. In my practice, in my um, in my experience of my life, I receive my own inner experience. I've experienced my own embodied state, and it's arriving. It's arriving in my awareness uh, over and over. You know, whether that is um, thoughts, feelings, sensations, judgments, mental thoughts. These are all arriving um, over and over, moment to moment. And uh, that's a world, that's an inner world. And the same happens at a larger level, at an outside-the-body kind of level, and then at a cultural level. So I think in all these ways, uh, we receive the world. You know, you say that you feel um, a responsibility to continue to advance or make Michael's teachings available. Um, do you feel a responsibility to his students in this way, or do they? is this sort of a shared responsibility with them? Oh yeah, that's a good point. Definitely a shared responsibility with them. Mm-hmm. I I believe his his work and his legacy is now material in the culture and and his students were very close to that work through him and some of those folks really knew him well and worked with him closely. And um yeah, I think that was all connected with Michael's life when he was alive and yet it's still alive in the world. And to be taken up or not uh, by others, and in this sense, to me, um, he's alive in this sense, and and he continues to evolve um, in this sense. And his work is not static, and don't let it be static. Uh, work on it, and work on it in your life. And I think, um, therefore, the dialogue continues. Karina, thank you for being so honest. I mean, I I know this isn't easy. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? I think of one part of the book. It's the one page that I have dog-eared, my Mm -hmm. copy of the book. Um, And maybe I'll just read it and then comment on it. Okay. This is from Chapter 13, Maps, No Maps. It's the very end. Let's work with our hearts and mind for a thousand hours, a million days, for longer than the stars and the moon and the sun, 
If anything is eternal, it's the will to practice, the endurance that is generated when something difficult is transformed, rescued from the dump, picked up by the grace of practice and turned into wisdom. That's lovely. For me, this captures Michael's energy for working with what was difficult for himself. And it really lands in me in a way that is comforting and inspiring and reminds me that I can I can do it. I can work with the difficult things in my life. And, um, and specifically from this paragraph, there's the phrase hearts and mind. It's in the book. And this was a very specific edit, that it's hearts and mind. And the mind is singular. Mm-hmm. And how I understand Michael in this moment is that the mind is... The mind is like the universe. The mind is a collective or like the ocean. It contains everything. And uh, we are all dealt some corner maybe of this collective. Or I think with bipolar, one is dealt a large sweep of this collective. And we do our best with what we are dealt. And and the mind is capable of any of those thoughts. And we we know this as Buddhists. This is like Buddhist psychology yes. basics, right? And um, and so just this reminder from him in this book that um, that the mind is shared, that his mind is shared. And I think he could be such an effective teacher because he experienced such a broad spectrum of mind. He could share with others how to approach um, real challenges because he knew them and he knew them really well. Well, that's such a nice way to end. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I, I think it's a, a real inspiration that despite his challenge, uh, he did continue not only to practice, but also to share it with others. His mind, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Karina. I, I think The World Comes to You is a very nice way to honor his life. It's a beautiful book. And i just like to thank you for taking the time and talking about what for you must be so difficult, really. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the, the opportunity and the privilege of sharing my experience in this book. Oh, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you. You've been listening to Karina Stone discuss the book, The World Comes to You, Notes on Practice, Love, and Social Action, here on Tricycle Talks. If you'd like to hear more episodes, visit us at tricycle.org slash podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org or leave us a review on your podcast player. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York City. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.